0: This
1: is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I hope I'm saying this correctly. Johnny Vedmore. Yeah. Welcome to the trenches.
0: Excellent. Thank you for having me here. Yeah, I'm uh I'm excited to talk and, uh, and and discuss stuff.
1: I also am. But what's, what I'm even more excited about is that finally one of my guests is in my time zone and having a
0: drink with me. Chin <laughs> chin to that. Some gin and cranberry juice. I haven't got any lime in this. I should have put some lime in it. But still, it's iced up and I'm ready to go. Though the ice will melt, no doubt, with me chatting away like it always does.
1: I love your accent. Whereabouts in the uk are you
0: uh, I, i'm uh, in south wales so uk everybody knows it's a a really like crazy place it's a uh, really mixed people don't quite realize it from the outside world i don't think they see us it, so as all one thing like this london centric place but uh it's not it's it's it's, it's uh, lots of I, I suppose you could kind of call them um indigenous tribes of the UK, well, lots of them were yeah, um, that aren't from northern France, like the southeast of England, so I come from Wales, which is of course on the side, its own country, uh, annexed by Henry VIII back here uh, 500 years ago and made part of uh, England, really. All of the laws are UK's of England and Wales. UK laws of England and Wales, so we're kind of still under the control and power of this neighbor, powerful neighbor next door. Um, but so are loads of the other um, in, indigenous tribes of the United Kingdom that don't even know they're not English. Um, so there's uh, up in the North, you've got the Humber's, the North Humber's, South Humber's, you've got the Lanx, uh, you've got the people of the Elmet where Leeds is, you've got down in the South, you've got the Cornish people, you've got the Devonian people. Um, uh, a lot of these, uh, a, a lot of these uh, people don't realize that their actual genetics is different from those of the, the, them down in London, and that they've been just controlled and ruled, and had their ruled and had their culture uh, whipped from under them by these um, uh, neighbours who came up with William the Conqueror, and they basically got up to the line of the road uh, that, that the, the Romans once built uh, that leads up northwards. Um, and they didn't actually like uh, they, they kind of stayed in the southeast. So if you look at the heliotypes of the UK, all the different genetics, uh, f- like different gen- genetics within the UK, they haven't changed really in about 1,500 years. So I'm one of the five tribes of Wales. I'm from South Wales. Uh, then there's Southwest Pembrokeshire, North Pembrokeshire, North Wales. And there's the Marshall lands in the center that separates Wales and England. So I'm from Wales. Lovely Wales.
1: Wales has has some very good music as well. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Stereophonics are from Wales, are they mm-hmm. not?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, band. yeah. It's it's like there's also like Manic Street Preachers and mm. and, and stuff. What from, happened to I them? Mean, people... Ah, <laughs> I think they all got <laughs> old and drunk. You know how it goes. I know they picked up about. In Wales we they, they they were seen as one of the most important bands for, and they, they were about them the millennium time they really was like they were at the peak of their fame but then they just they, they're just Welsh boys so they're just like oh, I can't be bothered with this anymore I'm gonna go off and do other things I'm you gonna know make a what... note
1: of I'm gonna make a note of them that you have brought back memories from the 90s yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah man what oh, there's great a few band. of them uh, we had a good music scene uh, down here. We also had um, uh, a band later on called Gomez. You might know mm. of. Uh, they were, I think, they were from West Wales, um, or at least a couple of the members were. Um, we, we've, uh, we, of course, we have people like Shirley Bassey and stuff. Tom Jones. Uh, we are called the Land of Song. Uh, we have the dragon on our flag. We're very proud people. We have our own language, which is extremely complicated. Uh, <laughs> yes. one of the... Oldest and weirdest languages about, and it's brilliant. And you know, we got to keep all of these things. But there's uh, what we're going to talk about today Mm. is the encroachment of our own um, indigenous cultures, um, our smaller cultures, um, our regional cultures, by first of all, um, a a form of uh, government centric nationalism, uh, which has led on to uh, a globalism, Mm. a a world order. Order, you may say, which is a nouveau world order, you could say, but really it's just globalism.
1: Well, let's segue into that. Uh, so, you are very good with family histories, and one that's particularly poignant right now is that of Klaus Schwab. Where does one begin?
0: <laughs> In 1870 you begin with uh Klaus Schwab's family history. That's the best because that's as far back as I can get. Now you'll hear loads of people online and they see a name Schwab and they automatically believe that means they're related to Klaus Schwab. So there's loads of Schwabs all around the place. Um, And there's a reason why there's a lot of Schwab's is because there's a place called Uberschwabia, which is down in the southwest of Germany on the borderlands of Switzerland. And it had a very. um, Uh. It had a history of anti-Semitism, blood libels back in uh, 500 years plus ago. You know, lots of uh, Jewish residents who lived there were accused of sacrificing babies, cooking babies. And the locals uh, basically went and murdered loads of Jewish people all around Uberswabia. And so when people in the future moved there, Uh, And they were they they weren't from around or maybe Jewish people who who moved there, they would change their name to Schwab because Schwab is of Schwabia, of Uberschwabia. So until uh, I think it's about 1840 to 1860, it's around that time that the law first allows Jewish people to pass through. The area where Klaus Schwab's father's from, um, where Klaus Schwab himself's from, uh, a place called Ravensburg, which is in Schwabia. In Southwest Germany, and this this place, it actually like written into law because of all the blood libels, because of all the 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 Jews being massacred uh, throughout history, and it causing great problems in the region. They decided, okay, we're gonna we're gonna um, uh, we're, we're gonna stop Jews from living here, uh, and then that went to writing it into law that Jews were not allowed to pass through, and that only changed in uh, the mid 1800s, and around that time. In uh, 1860, something else was happening in the area industry was being brought to the area by a man uh, called Walter zuppinger and Walter zuppinger was opening up a factory in, in Ravensburg and it would become the biggest employer of Ravensburg I mean you you you're, you're entering into the the real the real heart of the Industrial Revolution things are going kicking off you know for the next hundred years the machines are going to be uh, going and factories are going to be full and this was somewhere uh, Ravensburg was somewhere where the, this was this was uh, his idea we have one in Switzerland but we have this area Ravensburg where we could basically make a big factory and it kept expanding and expanding and he started off I think he was doing like things like lace cutting machines at the start and that would go on to large hydron um, uh, large turbines um for uh um uh dams hydroelectric dams so hydroelectric turbines i suppose but massive ones uh, by the turn of the 1900s but we go back that's to come and eventually Klaus Schwab's father will go work in Zol- Walter Zuppinger's factory in Ravensburg as the manager of the factory during a very important time in history that we all know about well, but we haven't got there yet. We'll go back to 1860. Walter Zuppinger's opening this factory, and there's a young man um, who lives uh, up in uh, Germany in um, uh, Baden-Baden, I believe, at this time, uh, and his name's Wilhelm uh, Jakob. Wilhelm Gottfried Schwab, and that is Klaus Schwab's grandfather, and he is, uh, I believe, probably Jewish. He went by the name Gottfried Schwab. Gottfried was a nice German name. Uh, Jakob wasn't so much of a nice German name. And the, the laws about Jews being able to live in that sort of region had only just been lifted. So you have to be a little bit careful. So I think he was probably of Jewish descent but left behind any sign of that as uh, as they went on. Um by 1898 he had married uh, a woman I uh, called um Marie Lepet uh, Klaus Schwab's grandmother um and they had married in Switzerland because uh, Klaus Schwab's granddad had uh, basically emigrated in in uh, sometime in the 1800s he said I'm moving to Switzerland and to do so you had to give up for some reason anyway he had to give up his german nationality and go and live in switzerland and basically renounce his uh, What happened was eventually they moved back to Germany, probably because of economic reasons. Once they had a baby, Eugen Schwab, Klaus Schwab's father, in 1899, a year after they got married in Switzerland, they moved back to Germany for whatever reason. I can't quite find that reason. And um, uh, this meant that in the future, it would they would be denied um swiss citizenship because he never gained swiss citizenship while he was in that country later on his son eugen schwab and when klaus schwab's just a child in the 50s um, would uh, try and uh, gain back swiss citizenship and would be denied by swiss courts now that that document um, that legal document where they try and get Swiss citizenship after the war, and you'll understand once you understand a little bit about Klaus Schwab's father why Klaus Schwab's father in the fifties wanted to be hiding out in Switzerland rather than being in Germany because he had been working with some dark people during yeah. the war. Um, so why did he? So
1: yeah. So why did he?
0: Um, well, uh, basically, uh, b- basically he became the manager. um twice. He got married twice. So he had his first wife, the the, uh, marriage didn't work out. She was actually um, Jewish and would um, uh, leave uh, for um, America in 1938, uh, signing herself down as being uh, Hebrew uh, in nationality and and obviously, you know, fleeing persecution in Germany. Um, That would fall apart. And then he would marry Erika Eprecht. And during that period, he was working for Escherweiser, so Walter Zuppinger's factory and there was a big division between or at least it was made to look like there was a division between the business of the Swiss branch of Escherweiss and the business of the German branch of Escherweiss they made them very two kind of like independent companies that were doing in uh, doing separate things uh, this meant that as you were approaching uh, through the 30s um Of course, Ravensburg, this area was they they were uh, well under Nazi control. They were well down with the ideology. This is it's also a very special area in history of um, Nazism as well as World War Two, because um, this area, Ravensburg itself had special dispensation given to them not to be bombed during the war from the allies during the war. You know, you're at war against someone and you, you you go via the Red Cross and say, please don't bomb this place. This is where we'll do all our humanitarian aid. Well, in actual fact, they were creating, because he Escher Weiss's Ravensburg factory were making uh, large uh, turbines for hydroelectric dams that also worked for the um, heavy water, hard water, heavy water, sorry, um, uh, process of making new. Uh, nuclear or or making nuclear materials that can then be used in an atomic bomb as the race for the atomic bomb was going. Of course, you know, the West were looking to to win the war. Um, Germany were looking to win the war, and they both had their projects going. And Escherweiss was, um, it was a model Nazi company. It was, uh, I think, about 1937, 1938. It appeared in the quarterly book, which was called Model Nazi Companies, where they listed down the most Nazi of all the companies. And Ravensburg itself, you see some pictures of the time. You know, everybody is flat and the swastikas, swastikas are, are flying from every building, this was a real proud area, and during the war it didn't get affected at all, didn't get bombed, didn't get hit um, so so they, they uh, used prison labor there um, from mainly Soviet prisoners uh, that they had caught um, to man a lot of the factories where Klaus Schwab's father was the manager. And this this place, though, this was a very special place. Um Escherweiss had nearly gone bust on a couple of occasions in um, uh, the 10s and the 20s. And uh, this had meant that. Uh, The Swiss had kind of like taken it over um, uh, and uh, as a national uh, entity. So it was quite weird because this Swiss entity is now helping the Nazis to make the atomic bomb. So, you you know, that's something that later on in history would cause a lot of, you know, bad blood. Um, Of course, they didn't succeed. The Nazi atomic bomb project failed and um, the, the war was won by uh, the allies. Now, this, of course, the first thing that happened when the um, allies invaded is um, people like in actual fact, Henry Kissinger was tasked uh, in his war years, in his army days of going to um, uh, really uh, certain targets for gaining information and and hunting down Nazi criminals and Nazi scientists and finding them uh, with a, a specialist group so you know there were people, what they were doing is they were looking for all the information they were trying to, America and Britain were all over the ground going to factories like this and they were looking through all the paperwork and they were taking copies of everything and they were trying to get this information because they still needed to know what the Nazis knew they wanted to use that information And then, of course, afterwards we saw the flow of uh, of Operation Paperclip and the like They saw the flow of um, uh, Nazi scientists and uh, technologists, you could say as well, uh, uh, would still be true, um, over to the the West. So already... Uh, already there was a dynamic Already there was a, a, um, a, a separation We need to do all of this really quickly And there was a reason they needed to do all of this really quickly Is because they had ma- You know, these, these guys think about the future And they knew that once Nazi, uh, the, the, the Nazis were defeated The next uh, job was the communists The next problem was going to be the communists Because now uh, communist, Soviet uh, Russia Had um, Basically half of Europe That it didn't have before um and it, there was there was issues around that of course with communist ideology clashing with western ideology so this new front line appeared as we all know this new front line of the cold war and europe become a very dark place it was a place that was already rebuilding uh, from years of war devastation loads of death all around you know loads of injustice lots of things that couldn't be resolved through nuremberg and stuff even though they they uh, they they have these what I call resets I think I think you could say that Nuremberg was one of the great resets in history that the new supposed great reset wasn't the only one um and what what is interesting as well during this period and what is important to come to the next part of this is that in the 30s before the war in the early 30s uh, came the rise of technocracy so the technocratic membership club, it was like a membership club at the start, um, was formed and the idea of technocracy started to be espoused and worked out in more detail. And people knew that um, nuclear atomic bombs and nuclear bombs and all of this technology was on its way. You know, Einstein had uh, said a lot and everybody knew it was coming. So all of these sides were trying to get there first because they knew it was a paradigm shift in technology. And once the paradigm had shifted, once it had been made into a bomb, dropped publicly, Publicly, then suddenly this whole new world come about and it was a very scary world a very scary world and schwab klaus schwab a young klaus schwab who by the end of the war would be seven years old he's born in 1938 to eugen schwab while he's uh working at the model nazi company and all through the war i mean klaus schwab talks about wait um, when hold he's on. younger 19 1938 yes how's klaus so, schwab- so how does he now He's about 86, 87. Is he that old? Yes, seriously. He doesn't look that old, does he? Seems a little bit suspicious, like he gets special massages every day, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I would think you can afford it. <laughs> special model Nazi massages, you could say. Ooh, sure, he's ooh.
1: he's a lot older than I thought. Anyway, sorry, go on, I interrupted you. Yeah.
0: No, that's okay, that's okay. You can interrupt as much as you Like, Klaus Schwab talks about... So he talks about when he was younger, when I was younger, I would walk with my father and I'd pass over the borders of Switzerland to Germany, and I would I would see the destruction on the German side and all of this. Well, he was actually going into a place. It sounds like sorry.
1: In- it sounds like the sound of music. Oh, the hills are alive. <laughs>
0: yeah 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 completely completely you know and it's not a surprise that narrative is built after the war constantly this like heroic sort of like uh fairy tale narrative is just constantly piled on people and first of all it comes in that form it comes in the bittersweet taste of the sound of music please go on Uh, anyway so Schwab talked about the fact he's um, uh, passing across the borders of these countries seeing the devastation but he would have been like he would have been like six years old and he was passing into a place from Switzerland into a place that had been protected and had special dispensation all throughout the war and hadn't been hit by a bomb so you know you already see the start of Klaus Schwab and what what he says his past is like isn't what it's like and that's where I I mean the reason I started on this trail was because um, um, I was sitting in a kitchen with uh, Whitney Webb, and she said to me, "No one knows his, his his family history. Wait, just just I'll give you like a month and a half to come up with something and see what you can find." And I, I was allowed to go into that and 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 hunt around. And it, it, what became clear is that I had studied loads of like family trees and of the rich and famous, and some of them are hard to find. Some of them are tricky, but this was really hard. I had to Find every Schwab that ever existed and just go through them one by one. By the end of it, um, and there was so many rumors that were so fantastical. Oh, he He was married to a Rothschild, and he was this, that, the other. He was this, that, the other, and you know everybody really wanted that, that, that sort of like again a fairy tale imagining of the story to fit in with the fairy tale that's already been fed to you over a history, and feels like it's a self projection of our own understanding of knowledge and history um this fairy tale idea that it doesn't come like that it's like hard work find who Schwab is and I found it through those documents um that were legal documents that showed that he wasn't allowed back Swiss citizenship and then there's also um transport documents uh with um uh, Brazil with visas um where the father and the mother uh Schwab's mother's Erika Precht uh, Erika Schwab she's a she looks like a you know big round faced mama lady. You know, she looks a lot like Schwab in a a sense. He, he looks more like his mother than he does like his dad but uh th- th- this was schwab was forming himself and he says you know he worked for various youth groups um helping to uh sow the seeds like get rid of the 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 seeds that had been sown of hatred and and animosity during the war and german it, he was part of a german project to help uh um, french people trust germans again in all of this when he was a teenager and that's really interesting because at the time that was the trend you know there was a lot of organizations and my third article covers this really a lot of the organizations that were being uh, created um, uh, on both sides communists uh, you, uh, a guy called Willy Munzenberger had created one of the first uh, Comintern, turn uh, one of the first youth communist movements that was really massive in 1919 and in 1945 the British and the Americans were like oh we need to start doing all of this stuff to counter communist propaganda we need to do all of this stuff so they were starting to set up groups all over the place, they would set up um, Way and other big groups uh, Brittingham Vikings uh, scholarships which was a guy called, uh, who who I I can speak about later as well, Thomas Brittingham who's extremely interesting and is associated with Laird Bell who was doing roughly the same thing and funding the Kissinger help, helping control and at least uh, bring about the Kissinger course in Harvard where Schwab would eventually go Um, so Schwab was all about these youth Groups. He was all about these youth groups. And it's not a surprise because that's how the West, the British, and the Americans were recruiting their ideological soldiers so these weren't going to be soldiers they didn't want any wars like the past they didn't want any shoot 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 wars you know they had this new technology with with nuclear technology and we'll talk about the power that has and the mutually assured destruction and the, the fear and how that controlled everybody but they wanted something else they wanted leaders young global leaders, young leaders from around the world who could combat Soviet ideology on behalf of the West, who would be American aligned and who would say, I believe much more in what America has to offer and what Britain has to offer and what the ideas of the West are. And that's what Europe should be. And the first place they had to target was Europe. And within No time whatsoever, 1947, the CIA had been created from the remnants of the OSS um, and they they had within 1952 and 1953, they'd started their first coups in the Middle East. So they started, um, uh, first of all, with Egypt, with King Farouk, where they um, over planned to overthrow him and they did the coup. And the next year, because that was so successful, the next year in Iran in 1953, they overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh. Now, both those coups were uh, led and organized and planned out, headed by Kermit Roosevelt, Kermit Roosevelt, who was the grandson of Theodore Roosevelt um, and fifth cousin to uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was, of course, a hero, a very big hero at this point. Um, but but Kermit Roosevelt. He was one of the main figures to form the um, OSS, form the precursor to the OSS and form the CIA as well and to lead the first ever coups. But not only that, Kermit Roosevelt also headed the uh, CIA conduit organization, the American Friends of the Middle East, who would fund a Harvard course that. Klaus Schwab would eventually be trained into leadership, given mentors and go back and create the World Economic Forum through. So this is a CIA conduit, American friends of the Middle East, and Kermit Roosevelt, the guy whose action in these coups in the early 50s, knows, and all the newly formed CIA know that, If they're going to go down the road of coups, they need leaders they need to put in to power afterwards in um, Egypt. They had used uh, NASA. They had installed NASA from he had been um, a part of the free officers movement, which was um, a rebel organization. that was planning to do a coup in Egypt anyway. So um, it it seemed it seemed relatively relatively simple. And this this was all still under the, uh, the, the, the premise that we have to stop this Soviet ideology, communist ideology. Ideology advancing and taking hold in places like the Middle East, um, uh, like Egypt, like Iran. And the only way we can do that is really installing our own leaders. And at the start, they had to just install the leaders that were already ready on the ground revolting. You know, the revolutionaries on the ground they had to support, but they knew that that wouldn't work as well. And so at the same time, in 1951, Henry Kissinger and William Yandel Elliott is creating Kissinger's international seminar, the uh, which would take place at the summer school of Harvard every year and um, through the school of government and would train young global leaders who will take positions of power in business, in banking and, of course, in politics including wow. klaus Schwab, including pierre trudeau including a, a, a fair few others some i can't even i i don't even you know some of them i do not know their names and and people it's it's an amazing uh, the truth is always much more interesting because you can see how it leads how one thing leads to another how it it goes down this road um and The Internet Kissinger's International Seminar piloted in 1951, recruiting heavily, really, really by 1960. Uh, it was it was flourishing. And between 1960 and 1966, we know uh, it was funded by um, free organizations, foundations in particular. They were all CIA conduits. Uh, the Asian Foundation, the Farfield Foundation and the aforementioned American friends of the Middle East were all. Um, so, so, uh, this was this was a project to create young global leaders. It's a template of what Klaus Schwab would use afterwards. And uh, for me, it was just completely and utterly astounding to discover that. Um, already I had discovered the Schwab's uh, father's Nazi history in being uh, really important in the nuclear bomb project that Klaus Schwab himself after um, his uh, time in Harvard, I'll speak about this his time more, but after his time in Harvard, uh, this, uh, time more, but, um, time Harvard in 1967, because Klaus Schwab, gets told in 1964 by his father listen you're not going to make anything here you've got your you're your studying for your 12 doctorates already or whatever he, they were just piling on the wards already there he was uh, he was doing really well he was noted already and only the best candidates got into kissinger's international seminar only the best were chosen they wasn't like our young global leaders was at the start where there was 200 candidates at at Kissinger's it was 50 candidates who would go there and they would be the best selected from around the world there were no chumps at these events and he had so many qualifications and his father said go to Harvard Schwab talks about this himself in 1964 his father says go to Harvard that is where you will succeed and it had. Happened to be also the centre of where um, the sort of debate around nuclear weapons um, was had been happening, and would link Schwab. Who would start attending in 1965, the year after his father told him to go there, uh, told him to go there, and and Schwab says in one seminar, oh well, you know, um, Kissinger, he was he was really kind to me and allowed me to stand in or sit in without paying any money, but it was free. In actual fact, Kissinger's international seminar, if you were a candidate of it, you were brought over, and I've got um, adverts from Lahore army newspaper advertising for candidates for this in 1957 and they say everything will be paid for Everything, but you've got to be the best candidate in the world. You know, this is the top global leaders. These are the best young global leaders that we need, and they need to be the best. And um, so so uh, you know, they paid uh for all the board, all the room, all the travel, uh, all expenses paid. So Schwab lies there, and there's so many lies wrapped up with it. Um, and so in 1967, he left there. And he goes straight to his father's old model Nazi company, Escherweiss, who were merging with Schulze. He would already um, worked as like a uh, done work experience or trainee or some sort of experience anyway, for about six months to a year at Escherweiss beforehand. Um, but he went back there because uh, when he left Harvard, uh, he said, and this is another thing Schwab, out of Schwab's mouth, Colonel Jacob uh son, uh, Peter Schmidt heini called him who's now running Escherweiss, like Colonel Jacob Schmitainy had run Escherweiss before, and said, oh, you know, now you've been to Harvard, you should come and help us at Escherweiss with our merger with Schulze AG, another massive company that had a really bad reputation due to the fact of its allegiances during the war, and who had been punished over and over again um, for what they had, who they had sided with. During the war and what the, the dirty business deals they had done with the Nazis, um, so so these two Nazi companies were merging together to try and get a, better, a little bit of a better look about themselves, um, and and. Klaus Schwab was the one who would be there to merge them. He was put in charge of merging them. At the same time, they started selling uh, illegally nuclear weapons technology that was secrets to the apartheid South African regime when it was illegal by international law to do so. So he did exactly, exactly what his father did. He went exactly, he left Harvard. He went straight back to Germany to exactly the same model Nazi company. He made it a stronger model Nazi company with all his experience. And he started dealing in nuclear uh, weapons, nuclear proliferation. With well, South Africa. Roll it back yeah yeah in south amazing and of course you know <laughs> the south africans never made it to actually having a nuke but they in 1990s the swiss government did a big review on all of this illegal dealing in the 60s and 70s and revealed that Schulzer ag during this period they don't call it Schulze escher weiss they call it schultzer ag but they're talking about the period when it was actually schultzer escher weiss and klaus schwab's there heading the merger and deciding which part of the companies do wit what for the boss peter Schmettiny and they're dealing it's just astounding astounding he does exactly it's a cycle and it, it I, I mean it makes you wonder about his son um olivier i think his name is or oliver uh, i think it's olivier um he's uh he's off in china at the moment uh, i wonder why he's doing but anyway so um this is of course There's a reason why uh, atomic and nuclear pattern is repeating. Cycle is repeating here um, because Harvard was really, Klaus Schwab went there while it was really at a very important uh, moment in history. Um, The, for years, Kissinger worked for the CFR uh, through the 50s. He uh, was setting up this international seminar. He was teaching at Harvard, and he was working for the CFR, and they were wargaming out nuclear strategies. Of course, he does foreign policy, nuclear war and foreign policy, or whatever it's called, um, uh, uh, one of his seminal pieces that, that looked at the, the dynamics of it all in the um, mid-50s, mid to late-50s. He released that. And of course, that came with like the, the world was in this this fear complete constant fear about it being destroyed everybody dying you know I, I've, I've read um, in one book that I read I think it was Stephen Ward's Scapegoat and they're talking about the communists um, uh, infiltrating London clubs uh, um, during the 60s and they said you know every it, it, we didn't think the world was going to be ended tomorrow we thought the world might be ended right now so we, 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 we were living it up. We were doing as much as we can. We didn't care about the, the consequences in the future. And there's a lot of this goes on. They didn't care about the consequences in the future. Now these guys were doing something different at Harvard. These guys were concentrating on the future. Kissinger was concentrating on the future because he he had an ideology he had a globalist ideology he wanted to create a global world order where everybody sat at the same table and world war like he had saw seen it would never happen again before that to happen you would have to bend and break nearly every single part of what is humanity all around the world you know that's what I see it as anyway the last part is my own opinion that you'd have to bend and break it but that's what he did as well in many ways, is a repeated frame throughout Kissinger's existence. Is this um, trying, to, having to break uh, nationality, culture, uh, uh, sort of like this, uh, what he would see as tribalism, to create this um, global world order, and. So, this nuclear paradigm was going to end at some point. The communist East versus West thing was going to end. There was going to be a winner and there was going to be a loser. Yeah. And they he started working with um, Herman Kahn, who's known as the real Dr. Strangelove, believed to be the main person who Stanley Kubrick based Dr. Strangelove on, even though I think he's an amalgamation of characters. He's like um, Fritz Kramer, who trained up, Kissinger during the war and and was Kissinger's commander. Uh, Kissinger and uh, Herman Kahn. I think it was like this Kubrick sort of Doctor Strangelove. But he, it, Herman Kahn, is an, an amazing intellectual who you you just I mean he's astounding. He used game theory and really really interesting techniques to discover um, what the future looked like, and he did it with extreme accurate accuracy. And he was doing it um, funded by people like the Rand Corporation. And supported by people like the Rank Corporation through the Hudson Institute, and by 1966, between 1966 and 1968, I think it is. So the time when uh, Klaus Schwab is at Harvard, uh, taking part in Kissinger's international seminar, Herman Kahn is working for the State Department to create two documents. Um, uh, he, at the beginning of the 50s, Herman Kahn had written on thermonuclear war, which is one of the biggest uh, sort of um, uh, pieces about uh, critique of thermonuclear technology and its uses and how to use that and he had come up with some astounding ideas but in 1967 you saw some really interesting things happen because he was working for the state department and they were focused on two things uh, one was the year 2000 which looked at the technolo- technological advances that we expect they expected to have within uh, the, the before the turn of the millennium And this was like, you know, they they, Herman Kahn predicted it with amazing accuracy if you go look at the article I think the second link from the bottom will um, give you a checklist and someone's color coded it to show you which technologies we reach and which technologies we haven't but everything's there everything you can imagine of is there uh, you can think of you can imagine up is there and we have gone through so much of it it was a very successful document and I believe it would be like for people like Klaus Schwab a tick sheet it would be like don't care about the dangers don't care that some of them are paradigm shifting technologies that will have the same negative effects and consequences that nuclear weapons had during the uh, post-war period don't worry about all of that we're just trying to forge this new future whatever the consequences whatever and even Herman Kahn himself stated over and over again if we get to this point we've got to be so careful because all of these technologies could mean the wiping out of human race now people like klaus schwab believe that we are going to transcend a human race so we're going to become something else by using these technologies he's a technocrat eh? so this, yeah yeah so this is a, a fu- and a futurist and and mm. um, much else i mean he's he's ex- on the extreme end he's not uh, aiming at creating uh, um, the technologies we need he's aiming at creating all technologies and that could be dangerous and that that of course is a recipe for disaster eventually um, but we were living under a time in the this, like, like say in the 60s something crazy was happening they they people were at the height of nuclear fear at the beginning of the 60s uh herman kahn releases this is his Book on thermonuclear war, people start to really understand it. 1964, Dr. Strangelove comes out and shows nuclear uh, war as being something where all sides panic and no one should fire anything because it'd be mutually assured destruction. And teaches the wider audience about this idea that if one person presses a button, everybody doesn't, the world goes up. So we may as well create some sort of doomsday device like Tesla would have wanted that could just destroy the world if anybody presses a button. You know, that that was the. the, the, the the idea that they were working on and that was where they had come to as well they worked out there wasn't going to be nuclear war one person said that for every one finger on the button there were 14 hands lifting up that finger you know there were there, there were so many mechanisms in place to stop that happening so they said it's very unlikely we're gonna have nuclear war but everybody's still scared of it so let's keep that paradigm in play um and actually let's make that paradigm bigger let's start proliferating nuclear technology to other countries to uh, uh, so china suddenly gets nuclear technology uh, to, uh, uh, has its first bomb etc in uh, what 1964 i think it is um, later on india would in uh, about 1974 about 10 years later pakistan would be looking for it all of these uh, countries like south africa um would would uh, be being leaked bits of nuclear technology because hopefully maybe they can get there too and they'd say they had seen it these people had seen it well if everybody has a nuke no one's going to press a button you know that's what they had believed uh, that's what they believed and and it's a risky strategy because <laughs> if you're wrong everybody dies but it seems to have worked out so far um and so by 1967 the world was a different place, they were looking at things differently and uh, everything changed really, 1967 is a really massive year, um, especially when I was studying my most recent article because a lot of it, um, what a lot of people don't know at the beginning as the CIA's formation and a lot of these organisations that supported Kissinger's international seminar were actually anti-Zionists they they didn't agree with uh, the creation of the Israeli state um, because they saw it um, as Dorothy Thompson and a famous um a ju- american journalist said um it, it's like would create a state of perpetual war but it happened and by 1967 i mean it really happened and suddenly everybody had to flip sides and change sides and 1967 is a very strange year uh in history and it's also the year that kissinger um puts two mentors with schwab who's leaving this harvard he's going back to germany and he assigns him uh, john kenneth galbraith the famed economist um who was teaching at harvard at that time and herman kahn himself dr strange love himself to go back with schwab with klaus schwab to uh convince european managers business bigger uh, big up politicians to uh, support the creation of this new entity, which would become the World Economic Forum, starts off as a European Management Symposium, two years later, European Management Forum, and then uh, uh, almost 20 years later, it's uh, the World Economic Forum, but it's the same entity all the way through. And uh, that's when Herman Kahn, the father of nuclear game theory, um, and one of the most intriguing, because John Kenneth Galbraith is not just an economist, (laughs) he's a he's a man who who taught jfk he was um in university he's a man who um he's involved in some of the biggest moments in history he when when he was sent uh, after the war in 1945 when when he was sent to germany he was supposed to be looking at economic stuff uh, and then he was sent to go and um interrogate albert speer and albert speer was the head of german armaments war he was the head of all of the war armaments he was like the head of all of the wehrmacht really um so he's like the biggest person you can possibly go to interview and john kenneth Gumbres went there. i mean he wrote the speech after jfk got killed as well he drafted the first speech um to be uh, to be spoken by um uh, oh god i can't remember his name gin gin might be kicking in uh but the president at the time and and I mean, John Kenneth Galbraith, he was extremely interesting, uh, influential chap. I'm still doing research on him. Uh, other people could get on that chain because there's so much to buy into with him. It's unbelievable. He was a CFR member as well. Um, and he would be a joint keynote speaker at the First World Economic Forum. Um, he, alongside uh, Otto van Habsburg. Um, and these... the. the it would be such a success. 1971 was uh, the big success. And in 1972, drifted off a bit. You know, they had had big names in 1971, Herman Kahn, John Kenneth Galbraith, et cetera, had been there for the launch of this, uh, for, for the original of the World Economic Forum, the precursor. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, Johnny, sorry. I just want to uh, just quickly pause you just for a moment while you
1: have a sip. Um, at that stage, now this is early 70s, did Klaus Schwab already have visions of changing the direction of the entire world?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, most definitely. Okay, is um, is two things. Uh, the the first mention I find I did a little uh, I do a little thing called NewsHound now on on my 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 own channel on Fungi Monkey. And that's that kind of looks into articles that mostly um, aren't really included in articles I've done, like things I've come across in the past. I come across Klaus Schwab's first ever mention in any newspaper uh, in in um, in Britain and America. And that was uh, 1970. So four months, uh, four four or five months before the actual first ever Davos. Um, And he's just talking about normal business management stuff, but he's doing it in a very authoritarian way. And he's talking in a global uh, uh, way that it's about um, it's something to do with computers being a threat to our privacy. And so it's already like a technocratic um, tilt to what he's doing. He's already going that way. But there's something else there. By 1973, he's inviting in, I mean, and this is already a global project. He's already been put in uh, put in charge of something, which we know the direction it goes in. But by 1973, he brought in um, Aurelio Pecci to be the keynote speaker um, on behalf of the Club of Rome who had just wrote The Limits to Growth, which was about changing the entire population of the world uh, and 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 basically taking lots of people out of the equation and just population reduction, really a global population reduction. And I think that is about as extreme as you can get for uh, making changes on a world uh, scale. But this is a very interesting time. This is a really interesting time. This is the start. This is the birth. 1973 gave the spice that 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 thing of like population reduction and Aurelio Pecci speech ended with something like the enemy of humanity is humanity itself. You know, and it's talking about reducing the population to masses amounts, which is, of course, the conspiracy theory, apparently, that goes around today. But this was the, the the like this was the way Klaus Schwab really put a spark back into Davos. Now, World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab's sort of vision for it, because remember, he's like the, the lifetime boss of this organization. And the first 10 years was about setting it up, bringing people in, letting people see that this was a place where they didn't only go to discuss the future and what people would implement in the near future and in the long term, but it was also a place where these guys could network, network, network. The biggest guys could network together and could bring these people together. People from, Opposite side. So that first article that I've seen also uh, mentions, um, I think it's called the International Business Development Institute, um, who actually sponsor the first Davos in this article, which is very interesting. They state that it actually sponsors the first uh, Davos. And if you look at what they're doing a couple of months before, um, what they're doing is uh, inviting communists to learn capitalism. So there, it's like it's it's just up front. OK, we've got to we've got to bring this side in together with this side. And do you know what, guys? We're not so different. We can make a lot of things out together. If you learn a bit about our stuff and we learn a bit about your stuff, eventually we can meet in the middle and we can dominate everybody. And that's really what what the process of Klaus Schwab's world economic. Forum. It I, from, from When people ask me, I, I'm like, I always feel like it's like a mixture between like his ideology is a mixture between fascism and communism in many ways. It's like, you know, it's a real, like, that's the two ideologies that he learned about when he was he was being brought up. And it, it is like, even stakeholder capitalism is like, I don't know, it's kind of like individualism between those two ideas. And it, it, it anyway, um, there's lots of, the first 10 years, Klaus Schwab's making this organization work, uh, organization work and bringing in all these people. Then in the 80s, it starts to get real political. You know, they start to focus in on certain uh, ideas, but they're also th- gaming out how they're going to con- keep control. Uh, once the divide falls so this is all sides this is both sides both over in the communist side and in the western side how we're all going to keep power once that Berlin Wall falls because it's falling soon we know that this this Cold War coming to an end the Dynamics are coming to an end so that became like a point where loads of these guys gamed it out by the 90s then they were prepared they were really prepared for the fall of the Berlin Wall for this uh Idea that that suddenly communism was dead and 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 the, the new Russia coming out. And this was the time where they enacted the same thing that uh, the CIA had done during the 1950s, which is really coups. But these were real soft coups, real clever, uh, mm. secretive soft coups, because they started to train up. In 1992, uh, they l- launched for the first time in Davos. They said, oh, just before 1993, in actual fact, they, they and food night night they planned out. We're going to do something called Global Leaders for Tomorrow. Um, this would, of course, lead on to become. This uh, was the precursor. To the young global leaders project officially in the world economic forum and the first year was extraordinary it was like blair and brown from the british governments sarkozy merkel uh some of the big people now it, what was extremely interesting as well i think it took place in ukraine uh there's a picture of them all getting on the ukraine air, air ukraine plane um for really? the first davos <laughs> yeah so i think it took place cl- as close to where this stuff was happening you know and I think that's maybe where the first time that the young pa- young Soviet patriot, or whatever it was called, uh, young Russian patriot uh, program also started where three members, and this is reported in multiple newspapers, three members are, uh, were put forward by Russia to be the future global leader, like uh, Global Leaders for Tomorrow project. But for Russia, there was a separate entity, and one of them was Vladimir Putin. So three of three, three of them were apparently doing it this year but that's a really you know you only hear reports of it and people saying it you haven't got any firsthand it was done in secret at the time just before Um, you just just
1: before just before you carry on sorry i hope you don't mind me interrupting you from time to time i just want to make sure that i'm following you and also give you a chance to have some gin um in in your mind at that stage do you think klaus schwab Saw himself as some sort of savior of the world. I know it sounds messianic, but that's how he's presented himself. That he wants to he wants to change everything for the better. So he 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 didn't see himself as doing anything evil or bad.
0: Yes, I think that he had been in a situation where he felt that he was chosen to some degree. Um, when it, when he was suddenly surrounded by these enormous, ginormous figures, uh, these free mentors at Harvard, uh, Kissinger, um, who was backed up by William Yandel Elliott, one of the most uh, savvy men, political players in history that no one really knows about, no one really hears his name, and he's one of the most influential people in the history of, of mankind, really. Um, but but being surrounded by these sort of mentors like Albraith Khan and Kissinger meant that Schwab I think he felt that he was chosen and it was at that time where he was given the opportunity to do all of these big things and to start something which would be um, which would always work because it had the momentum of uh, secret American backing with also it allowed the forum allowed uh, all all versions of it um, allowed these people who uh, were creating this false image of East versus West in the newspapers and in the press and the mainstream media, It allowed a lot of the people who were actually organizing this and who were really responsible for this to sit and talk with each other in a kind of like hidden back rooms in little sort of meeting rooms and little meeting areas. So he would have seen the world changing in front of him. He would have seen he's putting these powerful people in together to sort out this problem and these powerful people in together. And he is becoming like a, 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 a Palpatine figure. You know, he's 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 using the democracy to get to the and uh, uh, unli- uh, uh, unlimited power or whatever it's called. Um, and he's get, he's you know, he's building up his ability to bring people together. But these aren't nice people. You know, that would be normally you'd go, oh, it's nice. He was bringing people together and they were looking for world peace, but they weren't. They were looking for a way to keep in power, to make sure that they kept in power, that the certain group kept in power during all of these changes. And. Uh, schwab had been at the birth of this sort of like game gaming out game theory using game theory with Herman and khan of what the future would look like and how and that gave them a, a real big head start to believe if you believe that someone has told you the future enough that you're willing to follow it then you and, and it turns out to be accurate You have got a lot of potential power there. You have got a lot of potential power because you know things other people don't know. Um, May I uh, make one note, though? Sure. Um, In 1973, when uh, Schwab invited uh, Aurelio Pecci to be the keynote speaker um, about limits to growth and population reduction, that turned Khan against um the project, I believe fully. Um, Herman Kahn actually went on a, um, a bit of a, a rant about how this was idiotic uh, stupid it was, it was negative um, and he went back into whichever institute he was in at the time and started mapping out another it was called the next 200 years which said that basically we don't need there are no limits to growth because we're going to eventually go out into space and we're going to be able to to make uh, sort of ways of living and technologies that we have no idea about that will mean that all of the problems of the now will no longer be problems so you know we are heading towards that direction we don't need to worry and he was really saddened by the direction it had gone but for schwab like i say he wasn't like that he was he didn't give the disclaimer at the end of uh, uh, of his his um uh, talks about the dangers of future technologies like herman Kahn did he saw all of this i think as a thing that he had to manipulate and that because all of these powerful people were on board with him that they can all do it together and they can all work at it together and everybody gets a piece of the pie and i do believe that that attitude of everybody getting a piece of the pie is his schwobian attitude coming out <laughs> yes. uh, the People of Uberschwepia were surrounded, and this is something I've said a couple of times, I've never written down. But people they are surrounded by Austria, in historically Austria, Holy Roman Empire, any uh, northeastern invader, the Lombardy people, the Swiss, uh, the 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 uh, Francos. You know, they they had to uh, learn to get. And to to trade with everybody and to get on with everybody and to give and take mm-hmm. in a way that not many other regions and people had to do for our history and that went on for thousands of years and i think that's sort of like you know that sort of um uh the, the most likely to come to the top of that and be most successful and to genes to survive are likely to be the people who are willing to give and take but in my opinion, more than you should be willing to give and take, give and take what yes. is beyond ethical borders or or the borders of morality. Johnny, uh,
1: something I wanted to ask you earlier also, just before you continue with with class, is his connections with all the most powerful people in the world was that thanks to his father?
0: And uh, you know, there's there's not much talk about. Um, uh, there's not there's, there's not much written about or documents uh, saying what Eugen Schwab really did afterwards. Eugen Schwab. Uh, w- well, it, after the war, they tried to run off to Brazil at one point. I think it was uh, like all of the people who had once been Nazis um, were afraid that the the uh, Nuremberg trials would be repeated and there would be a Nuremberg, II, And there was still a lot of anger, of course, around. So a lot of them went off to South America. That's why uh, uh, some of his uh, visa stuff comes up, and you're able to trace that he's the father of Klaus Schwab as well. That's one of the the, the, the many uh, bits of documentation out there. But uh, when that failed, because he didn't get um uh he didn't go to South America in the end. He ended up being part of a trade organization, uh, heading up a trade organization in Ravensburg itself, in the region itself, and it was quite quite a big. It was it, it was quite big. It was it's kind of like in a sense a very small version of the world economic forum if of what the world economic forum probably should be um but i don't think klaus i don't think klaus schwab's father was the most i think he was a he was known as being a practical person who could get the job done but i don't think he was anyone famous or anyone big really i don't think that people admired him and i and, and looked up to him but there is talk that there are um that there there was documents that suggested that the um, Western powers were actually hunting him down at one point for uh, you, for his knowledge. And that would make sense because he worked at a model Nazi company He would have been one of the first people interrogated, especially seeing as it was connected with the nuclear or the attempt to make atomic bombs.
1: So do you think that's how he made those powerful connections? Because in any normal sense... How does a random person become connected with the most powerful people in the world?
0: Yeah, I, I you know, the the, the nineteen sixty four is father saying you have to go to Harvard, that's the way only way you're gonna get get somewhere. Mm. That that is too much. I, 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 I think to myself that is a neat Klaus Schwab often says the things that you doesn't want you to investigate. This is how I've discovered loads of stuff. I'm just listening to Klaus Schwab and I'm thinking, what's he actually saying there? Because he says stuff to try and like cover up what he's just said. So often what he's just said before that is really telling. And it gives you some some interesting sort of like direction to go on. But I, I think there is I think there is um a likelihood that Eugene Schwab uh, was part in some way Uh, Part of an affiliate program of Operation Paperclip and he his knowledge and his expertise um, were were uh, sought by the Western powers um, and then. Something happened, and in the fifties he wanted to get away from Germany. Maybe it's because he he was already working with other people. It was like best I go somewhere else to do this. I'm going to work for foreign powers and be a traitor to my own country or something like that. You know, I don't know quite what the the the, the deal is. I think there might be a a point where um, the big people who were getting involved in this, when you see that. Galbraith was one of the people interrogating. Kissinger was people chasing the Nazis down. They would have gone there. This would have been high on the priority list and they would have met someone big. They would have met someone big. Eugene Schwab would have met with someone big. I think that's there, but I can't prove it. So I can't, you know, I often, I just don't say what I can't prove until I can find it another time. And so I have, I, I, I have hoped that someone else, because I've been off with so many other things, I've hoped that someone else would come to me with a little bit of uh, juicy information about Eugene Schwab during the late 40s Um, but so far nothing's come and I I do think there's a, a likelihood that Eugene Schwab was in some way recruited, noted as being extremely intelligent, maybe even became I, I mean, I think a lot of these Nazis were turned uh, into intelligence agents for the West because they had to. It's like, oh, you know, you'd be, the war's the one, now we want you to keep an eye on what's going on over here because we got to make sure your country is stable now, don't we? Um, and as well as that, Germany during the uh, 40s and 50s were uh, and, and after was still petitioned and under control Control of certain Western-aligned governments or Western governments, so well, it, there would have been crossover, but I can only, I can so only in,
1: suppose. in In terms of where we are now with with Klaus, I mean, his entire history is basically the the reason why he is the way he is now. We see him as evil, yet mm. all the global elitists see him as somebody
0: great there's some weird disconnect happening here yes there's there's two things there's two things that really really i i met someone um who makes uh documentary films and he had managed to get into the um davos once and he said it was really weird you know they're all just he, he sees them as real evil real 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 nasty evil and they're all up in these this big these big buildings and they're all shipping, sipping on their champagne talking together and for them it's completely normal they don't know anything different They're that's their little bubble you know these guys are up on the mountainside, um looking down on humanity but they're not even looking down on humanity they're too busy giving each other love all of the time they say, oh it's so nice to see you oh it's so nice to see you too oh what have you been doing how is your wife oh my wife is okay you know the, the, this is what these guys do they don't care their actions when they go into the the boardroom they're not they, they they don't take them outside the boardroom they, they're they also friends and etc but i think there's this for a lot of people they were they, they're like why why does klaus schwab always end up looking like such an evil figure whatever he does and whatever they do the world economic form but i think that's that's a reason because klaus schwab and his ilk are not trying to attract me and you Uh, He's not trying to attract um, uh, people without money or without purchase on society. They're trying to attract the big people, the people who've got the real wealth and the real power. And for that. You have to realize the psychology of wealthy people is not like ours, so we don't see it as like they don't see other wealthy people as evil and horrible uh, and doing all of these things that we don't understand because we're like we see the, the the how it affects the majority in society. So we end, they don't understand they're without they do not know what they do not know and they do not look up to us. They don't look down to look up. They don't look down at us and say, oh look how disgusting they are in the gutter. I want to be. Just like them. No, they want to look up and see a Bond villain esque ruler on a mountainside that they can be part of. They could be part of that elite that looks down on the rest of the world. The 0.1 percent, that's what they want to be. So those are the people with power and they're attracted to the idea of power. That means you have to expel power with um, your identity. And that's what Klaus Schwab does now. I think I think they make themselves look evil to an extent because Mm. that's what uh the other people see as power that's what they see the the rich people they see it and they love it they want to be part of it they want that they want to be in under the cover of that protection all of those different things um a lot of them are naive of course um and and that perception is a perception that's given to you, it's not a true perception. It's not. It's given to people. So Klaus Schwab is just another goobag walking around this earth, who's just a normal everyday guy. But he knows how to manipulate people, and he's had the opportunities to mm. manipulate people. And he's got the wealth and the ability to do that, and the training to do it, and he's been trained very well. Uh, he must. It might be one of the greatest managers in the world. It's true. He's managing a lot. He's doing a lot. Of, but but I mean, when we look up onto that mountain, we see that these guys have an amazingly terrible amount of control that they've undermined all of our political systems they've penetrated the cabinets and they've taken over um uh, countries they've literally done soft coups in countries well that's what i was going to ask you um was, how how powerful is klaus schwab actually it's it's He's as as powerful as long as he stays alive. I don't know what happens after him. Uh, and and this is this is one of the things that 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 comes with the Kissinger Continuum, my most recent article, uh, is, is that there's someone, I mean Kissinger was there. He was given his place by William Yandel Elliot, and Kissinger chose Sh- uh, Schwab to be the next leader towards this global uh, world order. Who comes afterwards? I do not know. And he is so powerful at this point. He's at the. He's the person that makes all of this work. Without him, will it all crumble? I very much doubt it because it's been set up to continue to go. It's a machine. Klaus Schwab, like like the the evil uh, looking villains on the mountainside, is a distraction to us more than anything. Klaus Schwab is just part of the machine. Um, so so he has lots of power it's real power and then in reality he has no power at all <laughs> and we only give him the power that he's got but People are giving it to him because, of course, he's uh, they they that tech, as technology increases their power, their hold on power increases. But I, I do believe personally that you can they cannot convince everybody to get on their bandwagon. It's impossible. So eventually they've got to reach peak, peak support. And I think we're there. I think that's why we see so much back push back now they went past peak support um and that's partially because people are starting to see what their um agenda really is and other things i mean w- one of the, the the most important parts of um the uh, last article i wrote on this series is that um in 2004 when the young global leaders project was being reimagined um it would be kissinger um uh who was on the board of the dan david foundation who would help schwab gain a one million dollar prize to create the young global leaders so the young global leaders project was created with money that was pushed forward by their, they can always find the money they can always find a the support they can always find and while they've got that support and that power and that ability they've got the power that power can only be taken away by that support. Now most of these people are half dead, and is this new generation come up of technocrats who are ready to take over? Um, but, but I mean, I, I'm. When will Klaus Schwab die? When, when will he die? <laughs> is he is he going to be one of the first humans to be made fully into a machine? Cryogenics surprise. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, there's so much going on um, with technology and the increasing of technology to to be almost science fiction that Klaus Schwab has done the part that he needs to do. Mm. He is uh, he has created the machine to go on now, um, and it's us to up to us to dismantle that machine. I How believe. do we do that? But I do. Huh. <laughs> um, lots of people say by getting off the grid and not supporting their system but still the 66% say that do support their system if we say that f- two thirds are currently supporting their system or at least blindly supporting their system the majority I do believe that like, it's like the, the 10% of the world is really like you know uh, pushing it one way and is, is making things happen and 10% is revolting and all the people in the middle are kind of like 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 acquiescing in different stages of acquiescence, at different stages of like a servitude um, uh, as you go up the spectrum. So I don't think it's that many people who are actually pushing all of the buttons and doing all of this. I don't think there's that many people to fight against it. So those ten, that ten percent saying I'm not going to buy your stuff, I'm not going to use your companies, it's going to do zero, and they know it fully well. So it it come, it comes down to a point where culture our own culture has to be saved that we have to save our culture from these people they want to homogenize everything and we see that in every single step they make now it becomes a homogenization of culture yes. of, of states and that's what we've got to do we've got to try and uh really protect our nations protect our regions protect our history Localism. Um, we've yeah, we've also got to uh, make sure that there's enough people writing the real history of the world because otherwise we'll end up with only books that these guys have written and published because these guys are the ones who are mostly writing and publishing everything and got all, all of the companies that write and publish. Mm. So we need to fight against that by actually making sure that people in the future know the history because if, I, I mean, most of... Uh, when when you do a lot of this research everything all looks so rosy from the outside when you put it all together you're like oh my god this is dystopian <laughs> as hell what's happening you know people haven't put together the puzzle and each 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 part of this puzzle needs to be put together for people to see what people can do is each person has got to stop saying well there's nothing i can do anyway and that's really hard to get people to do because that that's sort of like defeat defeat itself don't be blackball really That's nearly everything I come across. It's everything I come across. Whenever I talk to anybody, that's nearly always the answer that comes from the majority of humans on Earth. There's nothing I can do about it anyway. No, I can't be bothered. I'm just going to look after my own. That, that Johnny, is the black
1: bull, and I hate it. it.
0: Yeah, I I don't know how to get over it uh, because I know some of the loveliest people on earth Mm. who think like that and I understand why they think like that and only once their own life is uh, infringed upon and their own freedom is curtailed enough or etc will they actually respond to that and do something about it and say no wait 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 they don't seem to you know uh, I think we don't in 1967 another thing got Got uh, written in, which is all connected to this, um, at the Hudson Institute. In secret, they were writing um, a policy uh, uh, study that was, I think is really important. Herman Kahn was writing um, uh, alternative solutions for e- educating the uh, leadership group outside society. It was a 500. It's something along the line. That's not the exact name, uh, but it, it, it's uh, it's basically a 500-page uh, um, inspection on how to, how and why to educate. Uh, the masses differently than the leadership group which of course makes you understand why they did the young global leaders program and and this harvard program it was really that's where it really came from Um, but it also did something else it showed that they were saying we've got to start taking out certain information from the masses from the mainstream from the schooling uh from regular schooling regular universities these people have to be made to serve the people who have been chosen to be the special leadership group outside. And so for that, they shouldn't know certain pieces of information. Uh, That is where our problem is, is the flow of information, keeping information, guarding information and spreading that information. Um, Lenin knew that. Lenin and, and later on the CFR and the CIA they discovered that too they discovered well we've got to set up all of these organizations to combat all of this communist propaganda we've got to make western propaganda that's the only way and we've got to infiltrate sta- governments and we've got to infiltrate people's minds and we've got to infiltrate the minds of the young uh, you know we've got to push a part of, of our agenda well the free people have got to do that too we've got to we've got a real push we've got to push it out now really hard there's good news. There is good news because uh, mainstream media is dying on its ass. Uh, the, the, the people are fed up of hearing this nonsense. And at some point, something's going to break with this that allows people to uh, a, a mass of people to hear a load of news uh, that will shift their their understanding of what's happened in the past now what that is i do not know but it's out there it's already out there that information is so much information that uh, uh, under um it completely uh, pulls the rug from under their narrative that they've formed in this time so much information there's some something out there will will do that to a global extent will uh, i believe they cannot keep this they cannot control everybody uh, eventually people will push back and then people will learn how to formulate to that information in a way that will will wake up loads of people so i do think that the, the death of the mainstream media is a sign that there's something else coming as well and it's um um it's it's much more it can be really complicated at the time i mean people say some stuff online and people believe them, you know, I mean it's mm. like, you I, every day I'm putting my hand on my head and thinking oh my god, are we are we, are we we going to survive this, are we going to survive this I mean, watch TikTok and you're like human race is doomed, there's no yeah. point in it, I may as well just chuck myself off a, a, a ravine now and uh, get it over with like. Um, but but it's not, It's it, I mean these are all the images being protected out to us in actual fact, people, I've met loads of people who understand what's going on but they don't know how to vocalize it and we are we are a creature that's only got to a certain point with language that we haven't been able to really um reach lots of people with just normal words written down on paper or words said Mm. I, i i don't know something is coming and i think it's going to be signaled by the death of the mainstream uh news outlets johnny it's coming for a landing um
1: all, is it fair to say that all the the young leaders that ended up at the World Economic Forums, um, what, what do you call it? Course, um, leadership initiative conference, program. initiative program. Yes. Yeah. Is it fair to say that not all of them have ended up ended up bad or evil?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there there are there are some talks, um, of of. I, I've, I I found this one guy who was speaking about being involved in it at one point and they questioned a load of stuff and then the next year they changed like it was like 1992 I think they did like a pilot version of it uh, to test it out and they people asked too many questions and stuff you know and they had to select people very carefully and when you look at the first year like some of the business leaders Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Bronfman oh my god these are horrible people I mean are the, these are some of the worst. So, I mean, you're thinking, oh, God. Is. But that's what we project out ourselves when we're reporting these things. We want people um, to understand the reach that these organizations have. So uh, people who are journalists are more likely to tell you uh, that um, both Pierre Trudeau has gone through the Harvard course and Justin Trudeau gone through Young Global Leaders. You know, they, they, we, we're likely to tell you these things because... Um, It's easy to get a visceral reaction or some understand. But there's loads of people who go through those courses and they're not going to be young global leaders in politics and they're not going to be potentially nasty, but they are going to be stuck in a mindset that is um, trained and given to them for at least probably five to ten years, you know, when you go through uh, a a load of things like this, I I, I think it's hard not to be left with the feeling that, oh, I'm doing the right thing and going the right way, until you see a load of things that tell you something opposite. So you can be told a load of things by someone you trust, you'll take it in, your mind is susceptible to that information, and you'll believe it. Then you go through experiences in life and you discover that those things aren't true. So I think there's a load of people who went through this program and went, oh, Oh my God! But I think there's also a load of people. I think this program has also been become a route, the Young Global Leaders Initiative in particular, a route for um, uh, intelligence. Uh, people to be trained up and other people to be trained up uh of course media politics and stuff were in the front of their mind i mean people like rio Ferdinand, the england football player was a young global leader i mean i i'm a man united, i i'm a man united fan don't, don't hold it against me but like rio Ferdinand, the idea the idea that rio Ferdinand is like evil to me it's just like see because rio Ferdinand is one of the dumbest people i think i uh, on earth i mean he's just he's so simple he's just <laughs> But that's what they look for. They look for people who are simple, who believe the narrative, who believe the hype, and they indoctrinate them a little bit more. And the Young Global Leaders, of course, you will be indoctrinated as much as you want to be indoctrinated. Mm. So that's it. And a lot of them do.
1: Um, I wanted to share my condolences for your Man United support. They lost horribly recently. (laughs)
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, They still beat Liverpool. They ended up beating (laughs) Liverpool, though. I mean, they had two two awful games at the start of the season. Ended up beating Liverpool, and I, I I wasn't (laughs) happy. I'm not listen. I'm not happy at all about them at the moment, anyway. Because I mean, I'm I, I on the side as well as doing this. I do loads of other things. I do police auditing. I do a bit of paedophile hunting here and there. I, I like I do a load of weird stuff. That, and I, I'm I'm very disappointed by how uh, the club and a lot of the online supporters responded to the Mason Greenwood allegations. Um, he because uh, the Mason Greenwood, I mean, came out with. Audio, um, and loads of images that you don't want to see of one of their young footballers who they've <laughs> carefully put brought up through the ranks who was going to be one of the best England football players. And it looks like he's a, a, a rapist and uh, a, 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 abused a woman. And his his career is done zero, I'm sure. zero career, and his career is done. Um, and it, it's uh, what what's really sad is it, not. I mean, I can't, the club aren't responsible completely for him, but they are responsible for covering it up for mm. ages. So they covered up his behavior over and over again. They went, even Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, I believe himself, went to the police station to get Mason Greenwood out secretly at one point. Why well, you send Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, that's, that does sound stupid. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to do a secret mission as one of the most famous footballers in the world.
1: <laughs> On a battleground. In the information war, what is your position?
0: Oh my god, it's weird. It's a weird position because at the moment I'm like they they, ha- they they they've got all of the power they're recording us all of the time, we gotta record them. So that's my position is I, I do that in many different ways. Like I say, I do the police auditing, so I go out with a camera and I go up into the police's face and they and and, and people outside say, You know you're not allowed to, uh, to to record me without my permission, but you have no expectation of, of of privacy in public in most countries with the rule of law. Um and that is an important thing that we need to keep that uh that we can record them because they are the ones doing the stuff and at the moment they're getting to record us we we don't want it to be um a digital panopticon created where they're watching all of ourselves and we 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 don't know what's happening there we don't know who's watching us we don't want that to happen so this is partially why i write this is why i document stuff down um because people need to know my place on the information war (coughs) <coughs> on on the main information war is like uh fighting against um the digital technocracy um but using a lot of their methods to do so um uh, you know it's the only we've we've really uh, i i have a really terrible uh, if uh, you have played out my vision of the future, it's terrible. These guys basically win. Ten uh, percent of humanity on the one side who do, don't bow down to them uh, are, are left with ten percent of them on the other side, and the rest are dead. That's that's what my true belief of where we're heading because uh, the majority of the world, the ninety eighty percent, if you take it working like that, uh, are not doing enough. Are not doing anything, and they're the ones who are being uh, used as guinea pigs and experimented on, and will be fodder for war, fodder for for all of those things. So I I, wow. I I mean I see myself on the lines of trying to wake people up to an impending doom, which is obviously on its way if we don't do something about it. And so mm. uh, I I I I talk I talk with my neighbors I tell them the same um, and you know what you, you get so many different responses from people and the, I, my, my place is I just got to keep going I just got to be like a rock a guardian of what is truth out there a guardian of information and pushing it out and make sure that, that everybody gets to see sources everybody gets to, to go along the line themselves and see that everything is got uh, evidence attached to it so I, I mean I it's a really weird thing to to, the information war both sides use the same tools and they you they have control of them all where can i find you yeah. Well, um, I'm on johnnyvedmore.com. Um, I got uh, fungimonkey.com, which is somewhere where I really, that's where my media stuff goes up. Some fun stuff there, too. Uh, that's fungi as in mushroom. So, fungimonkey.com. Um, but also on Unlimited Hangout, uh, where I write with uh, uh, Whitney Webb and John Klezak and some. For, uh, really uh, Matthew Eichert and other brilliant uh, writers who I'm really it's an independent platform hopefully I shall be writing for UK column a bit too soon I've written a, up a series uh, that I'm currently is in draft form and is uh, in negotiations you could say with well, them it's not in negotiations they're just looking over and deciding whether they want it if they don't then I'll publish it somewhere else but, uh, but it's it's you know I, I'm, I, I don't want to be in one pl- place this is another mm. thing about being in information war gotta be spread around so i'm in multiple places but you can usually find everything centralized on JohnnyBedmore.com.
1: thank you uh for joining me in the trenches
0: i loved it man i loved it i loved blabbering on (laughs)
1: all right don't go anywhere my name is germ this is germ warfare the battle of ideas
0: This is germ warfare, the battle of ideas.